Continuing to listen to the Crusades through Muslim eyes, which can be accessed at islamiclegacy.org. Let's listen. And the disbelievers plotted, and Allah planned too. And Allah is the best of the planners. Chapter 7. The Awakening The historian Ibn al-Athir writes, Syria was left completely at the mercy of the Franks, with no one to defend its inhabitants. But Allah, in his mercy to the Muslims, raised to power Imaduddin Zengi. Had Allah the Most High not been gracious to the Muslims and made the Atabeg the ruler of the lands of Syria, the Franks would have overrun it completely. Imaduddin's rise to power must be one of the most extraordinary events in the history of Islam. As a young man, this dark-skinned, bearded Turk ascended through the ranks, fighting under a number of Seljuk commanders. Before long, he became the governor of Mosul. Unlike his predecessors, he had no interest in plundering the innocent, accumulating booty, and drinking himself into a stupor. Instead, he would travel the length and breadth of Syria and Iraq, sleeping on a straw mat unfurled on mud outside the many luxurious palaces in his lands. Imad did not surround himself with well-wishers and yes-men. His advisers were seasoned politicians, and his informers were well-connected. But most of all, his soldiers were in awe of his commanding personality. Zengi was a brave man indeed. For once Zengi managed to stabilize Mosul, he moved to take Aleppo, Hama, and Homs from other Muslim leaders. At the same time, he destroyed any crusader fortresses in striking distance from the Muslim heartland. This campaign was not going to be easy, for Imaduddin had to consider existing divisions amongst the Muslim leaders. While he was fighting the crusaders, his capital of Mosul was under attack from a rival Muslim leader and at the same time, the Khalifa ordered he be captured and executed. Imaduddin had waded neck-deep into a sea of blood, and now he was going to pay dearly. In 1132, Zengi lost a decisive battle against the Khalifa of the time. His army was completely decimated, and he was forced to flee with several thousand enemy soldiers in hot pursuit. But his flight was short-lived. For looming in front of him was the river Tigris. He was trapped and helpless. This should have been the end for Imaduddin Zengi. But Allah had not willed Zengi to die just yet. On the other side of the river Tigris was a castle. And standing on the battlements of the castle, observing the flight of Imaduddin, was the Kurdish governor, Najmuddin Ayyub, the father of the yet unborn Salahuddin, Najmuddin could have won the favor of the Khalifa by taking no action, but instead he sent a boat that ferried Imaduddin to safety. Allah had chosen this moment to forge a bond between the family of Zengi and the family of Ayyub. 
Together, these two families would forge a united Islamic front against the Crusaders. Zengi continued his campaign, which culminated in the conquest of the Crusader state of Edessa, a large principality that extended like a dagger into the heart of the Muslim lands. The Sunni Muslim world erupted in joy, but Europe was rocked to the core. Cries for a second crusade rang out in every corner of Frankish lands, and preparations for another invasion began. But the taking of Edessa was to be Ahmaduddin's last act. Two years after the fall of Edessa, in the midst of another campaign, Zengi was murdered where he lay in his sleep. He was 60 years old. Ibn Lathir writes that many learned and pious Muslims saw Zengi in their dreams after his death. How has Allah treated you, they asked. Allah has forgiven me because I conquered Edessa. The death of Imaduddin Zengi left the Muslim Ummah leaderless once again. A power vacuum had emerged and the threat of infighting was imminent. One man, however, remained composed amongst the confusion. He stepped forward to the body of Zengi, removed his signet ring, a sign of power, and slipped it onto his own hand. This was Imaduddin's son, Nuruddin. It was now time for the son to fill the shoes of his father. Nuruddin's resolve was challenged immediately. The Frankish knights of Antioch had retaken Edessa under the leadership of Jocelyn de Courtenay during the confusion following Zengi's death. Nuruddin acted swiftly, riding like the wind by night and day, abandoning exhausted horses along the way. He arrived at Edessa before Jocelyn could prepare his defenses. The Franks abandoned the city, fleeing under the cover of night. His knights tried to follow, but they were trapped and put to the sword by Nuruddin's cavalry. The speed with which the insurrection was crushed brought much-needed honor and prestige to Nuruddin. The Muslim world now looked once again to the Zangi family for leadership. They desperately needed it. The Second Crusade had just begun. The invasion force was almost as large as the previous one. French and German kings and a legion of barons, bishops and their knights had been assembled. It was said that Europe was emptied of every able-bodied defender. Ibn Kalanisi claims they numbered one million strong and they carried with them the riches and treasures of the West. In their eagerness to attack the Muslims, the French and German kings threw caution to the wind and raced ahead of each other. In their pride and arrogance, they shunned collective security and took their own separate paths through the Muslim heartland. The Germans found themselves at Dorilium, facing none other than the son of Khalid Arslan, Masoud. This time, the Turkish Sultan took his revenge. Only one-tenth of Conrad's army made it out alive. The French were trapped in a pass between snow-covered mountains. The Turkish army appeared from above them, firing arrows and then heavy stones and tree trunks. Then they descended on the crusaders. 
the French-led army was massacred. By the time they reached the Middle East, the number of crusaders had dwindled dramatically, but the core contingent of knights remained intact. In July 1148, they laid siege to Damascus. It was an intense conflict. The battle raged all day, only to cease at nightfall. The people of Damascus displayed terrific courage and motivation towards protecting their city because of its religious significance. Ibn al-Athir reports of a scholar of Moroccan origin, Al-Findalawi. He was seen walking ahead along with the infantry when the leader of Damascus informed him that he was excused from battle due to his age. He replied, I have sold myself, and Allah has bought me. And then he recited the words of the Almighty. Allah has bought the persons and the property of the faithful and will grant them paradise in return. Al-Findalawi marched forwards and fought the Franks until he fell to their blows. Against such resolve and the news of reinforcements arising from other Muslim lands, the Crusaders lost their resolve and their unity crumbled. The Second Crusade fell apart in only four days. Although the Damascenes had held out against Nuruddin's father, Imaduddin Zengi, they saw in the son a different character. They recognized his superior piety and sense of justice. The Damascenes opened their hearts and their gates to the son of Zengi. In return, Nuruddin brought in large piles of food to be distributed and abolished suffocating taxes. There was truly something extraordinary about Nuruddin Zengi. It wasn't just that he was a great warrior and competent archer, or that he was at least twice as strong as any of his men, and so quick on his feet that he could dodge the cut and thrust of any swordsman. Rather, Nuruddin displayed a range of qualities rarely to be found in one man. His belief in Allah was so intense that he would march in front of his fellow warriors, praying for martyrdom, and invoking Allah to resurrect him from the stomach of beasts. Unlike previous sultans, Nuruddin devoted his every waking moment to Allah. He was to be found either discussing the religion and affairs of the people in the company of the most eminent scholars, or waging jihad in the company of the Mujahideen. On the one hand, he was merciful and generous to the people, but upon himself and his companions, he inflicted an acute level of discipline. Those who lived with him said that, at home, Nuruddin spent his time reading parchments which the officials sent him, or reading or answering letters. He used to pray for a long time and read parts of the Quran by day. When night came, he would pray the night prayer and then sleep for a while. Then he would get up in the middle of the night and pray until it was time for the early morning prayer. He would first go to the mosque and then head for the markets to know the affairs of the Ummah. He would call honest people from every corner of the Muslim lands to ask about those who were genuinely in need. To these people he would distribute thousands of dinars every few months, and yet he survived on meager portions himself. It is recorded that Nuruddin's wife once complained that she did not have enough money adequately to provide for his needs. He replied, I have nothing else. With all the money that I command... I am but a treasurer for the Muslims, and I have no intention of betraying them or casting myself into the fires of hell on your account. 
Nuruddin's vision was simple, to unify the Muslims under the Sunni banner and drive the Crusaders out of their lands. And Allah granted Nuruddin victory after victory. And yet, Nuruddin did not succumb to arrogance and pride, for he knew that it was only Allah that brought him victory. It is reported that the treasurers of the state complained that there was little money left for the campaigns of jihad. They suggested that some of the very generous grants given to the poor, the orphans, and the widows be diverted for the sake of Allah. But Nuruddin retorted, No, by Allah! I beseech Allah's victory through those people. Your Lord provides you with the means of subsistence and grants you His victory due to the weak among you. So how can I deprive them of their grants while they fight for me with their arrows that never miss, and grant their shares to people who fight for me and their arrows might hit or miss? Despite his martial abilities and the size of his armies and their numerous champions that fought under his command, it was Nuruddin's special relationship with Allah that struck fear in the hearts of his enemies. In 1170, a Frankish occupation force settled in the Egyptian port of Damietta. The Muslim citizens of Damietta were besieged by the presence of the Franks. Nuruddin was very much affected by the state of the Muslims at Damietta. At that time, a reader recited a saying of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Those around Nuruddin realized that he did not smile upon hearing the tradition. They asked him about it, and he replied, I feel ashamed in front of the Almighty to see me smile when the Franks are besieging the Muslims of Damietta. In the near future, a sheikh close to Nuruddin had a dream where he saw the Prophet, peace be upon him. The Prophet, peace be upon him, said, Tell Nuruddin that the Franks have departed from Damietta tonight. The Imam said, O Messenger of Allah, Nuruddin may not believe me if I inform him of that. So tell me a sign that he knows. The prophet, peace be upon him, said, Tell him about his prostration on the hill of Harim, and his saying, O Allah, grant victory to your religion, not to me. Who is that dog, Mahmud, to be honored with your victory? The imam got up and went to the mosque, where Nuruddin was in the habit of praying five times a day. When he stopped him, Nuruddin asked what the matter was. The imam told him about the dream and the sign of the prophet, peace be upon him. However, he did not mention the word dog. Yet Nuruddin insisted that all the details of the sign are relayed. After hearing the precise dua, Nuruddin wept and believed in the dream. Not long thereafter, news came that the Franks were leaving Damietta. And thus the Franks used to say, Nuruddin is close to Allah. He used to pray at night and raise his hands, invoking Allah. Thus, Allah answers him and gives him whatever he asks. Regarding Nuruddin, Ibn al-Athir comments, I have read the biographies of past kings. Other than the first caliphs, I have found no other man as virtuous and as just as Nuruddin. It was Nuruddin who turned the Muslim armies into a force capable of crushing the Franks. Now that Damascus was in his hands, Aleppo and Damascus were unified, along with Edessa and Mosul. Shazar soon followed. All of Muslim Syria was now one block. 
What would be his next move? Should he attack Antioch, the nest of the Hospitaller Knights, or should he attack Jerusalem itself? He did neither. Allah, in his perfect plan, created an opening that was unforeseen and brought to the stage of events another hero of Islam. Chapter 8 The Lion's Nephew Six years after Najamuddin Ayyub rescued Imaduddin at the river Tigris, he was forced to flee his own castle with his brother Shirku and newborn son Salahuddin in his arms. Apparently Shirku had killed a wealthy castle guard for falsely accusing a Muslim woman of being unchaste. Imaduddin welcomed the Ayyubid family with open arms. He appointed Najamuddin commander of a nearby city. These were the best days of Salahuddin's life. Under the watchful gaze of his father, he learned horsemanship and trained for battle. While the Kurdish youngster absorbed invaluable lessons that would serve him for life, it was his uncle Shirku that would take center stage. Shirku quickly associated himself with Imad's son, Nuruddin, and when the son took the reins from his father, Shirku became his right-hand man. Asaduddin, the lion of Islam Shirku, was a genuine leader of men and perhaps the foremost military strategist of his time. Although he was short in stature, he had tremendous physical strength. Shirku won great fame in the Battle of Inab by killing Raymond II of Antioch in single combat. This was one general whose army genuinely loved him, and he loved to lead them from the front. Salahuddin moved to Damascus, where he matured under the shadow of his beloved uncle Shirku. Nuruddin sensed great potential in Salahuddin and kept him by his side during key battles. In the meantime, Shirku's men thundered onto the plains of Egypt, striking fear into the hearts of the Fatimids. The campaign to conquer Egypt for the Zengi Empire became a test of will for Shirku, and he dragged his reluctant young nephew with him. My uncle Shirku turned to me and said, Yusuf, pack your things, we're going. When I heard this order, I felt as if my heart had been pierced by a dagger, and I answered, In Allah's name, even were I granted the entire kingdom of Egypt, I would not go. But Allah made Egypt a training ground for this young and timid Kurdish boy, for he was to be the great sultan, al-Malik an-Nasser Salahuddin Yusuf ibn Ayyub, May Allah have mercy on him. In the end, I did go with my uncle, he added. He conquered Egypt, then died. Allah then placed in my hands power that I had never expected. The Sultan was careful not to take credit for a campaign in which he was really just an observer. His uncle took on two villains, Shawar, an Egyptian ruler whose wicked and mischievous plots plunged the entire region into bloody conflict, and... Amalric, a Frankish king so obsessed with conquering Egypt that he invaded the country five times in six years. Although Egypt was known for its riches and treasures, it was also a land of treacherous conspiracy and political intrigue. By the mid-1100s, 14 of the previous 15 rulers had been killed in office, either hanged, beheaded, stabbed to death, crucified, poisoned, or lynched by mobs. One was killed by his adopted son, another by his own father. The office of leader was not one that came with great incentives. 
And yet Shawar clung to power with blind obsession. He had only just ascended to power when his first lieutenant ousted him. Shawar managed to entice Shirkou into Egypt with wily overtures, and it wasn't long after Shirkou restored Shawar to power that he found himself double-crossed. Shawar used his influence with the Frankish king Amalric to force Shirkou out of Cairo. But Shirkou was not one to take betrayal lightly. With a reluctant Salahuddin by his side and only a small but mobile army, he began a campaign of relentless battles against the Fatimids and the Franks, and sometimes he took them on at the same time. On the 18th of March, 1167, Shirku faced the combined might of Frankish knights and Fatimid heavy cavalry at Ashmunin with only 2,000 lightly armed men. Shirku assigned command of the center to Salahuddin. The young general is about to get a valuable lesson in tactics. That is it for today. Please remember to leave a review and rating wherever you listen and to remember to share the podcast with your family and friends. We are on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and we're also on YouTube as a voice-only channel. Please join our Islamic Audio Bytes community on Instagram and Twitter, and follow me on Facebook as well. Do check out our website at islamicaudiobytes.com, and if you would like to contact me directly, please do so at sisterb007 at gmail.com. Hope your day is full of goodness. Aslamu alaikum.